theyeshiva.net. It was probably the greatest collective failure of leadership in the genesis of Jewish history when Moshe Rabbeinu sends 12 leaders, 12 spies, upon whom, about whom the Torah testifies that they were prominent leaders, Eile Shmois Ha'anoshim, Asher Shalach Moshe Lasser Esar, these are the names of the men who Moshe sent to scout the land, and the Torah describes them as Kulam Anoshim, they were all men, Rashi Bnei Yisrael Hema, the heads of the sons of Israel. What does it mean, Kulam Anoshim, they were all men? Obviously, if he sent 12 men, they were men. So Rashi says, When it says they were men, it's like you say, you're the man, or he's the man. They were all men of distinction. Men, people of great prominence, of great dignity, of great significance, of great virtue. As he says, They're considered, they're described as the heads, the heads of the Jewish people meaning they are blessed with with leadership skills, with extraordinary qualities and characteristics. This is how they're described. And yet, and yet notwithstanding the great qualities that these individuals possess, somehow their mission ends up in a colossal, Failure and catastrophe. The stakes are high. The hopes are elevated. Everybody is looking forward to enter into the promised land. They are supposed to come back, give a report, and explain to the people the nature of the land, the flavor of the land. Thank you. Thank you the nature of the land, the flavor of the land, the nature of the opposition, the empires they would have to confront. Moshe asks them to describe the people who are living there, how many people are living there, the population, the strength of the population, the nature of the earth, the different types of cities that are there, how fortified they are to bring back the fruits and when Hashem says to him, Shlach lecha anoshim, send men. And as we said, Rashi says, men means people of prominence. And I guess in parentheses, it would be worthy to note the commentary of the Kleyakar, written in the 17th century, 1600s in Prague. The Kleyakar says, God says to Moshe, Shlach lecha anoshim, send to you men. And the word to you is, of course, very awkward. Shlach anoshim, send men and let them scout the land. It says, shlach lecha anoshim. So the Klayokar says, the fact that you're sending men is your position, it's your idea, and it's your responsibility. If it was up to me, so Klayokar says, up to me, I would only send women. Do, that's what he says, you could look it up. <laughs> This is a bad idea to send men. Listen to me. Thank you for agreeing. 
<laughs> Very good. Make sure to tell your husband in God's name. <laughs> That's what the Klayakar says. This is not a com- com- commentary written today. He wrote this in the 1600s. Uh, he says, God says, if it was up to me, do not send men. This mission has to be done by women. Take 10 women, 12 women, send them to Eretz Yisrael because their love to the land and their resilience is far superior. But you're not ready for that, so I'm just telling you I disagree. I think you should send women. Anyway, the rest, as they say, is history, and history is made up of two words. His story should have been her story, and then history would have been changed and substituted with her story, which maybe would have been better. <laughs> but that's what the Klayakar interprets. The Shlach Lecha Anashem. You could look it up in the Chumash Mikroiz G'daylas Klayakar. The truth is we do uh, source sheets on the yeshiva.net. I'll put in the Klayakar on the video, the source sheets, so you'll be able to see the Klayakar inside. What happens, as we know, instead... Moshe doesn't send women, he sends men. And the Torah lists the names of the men. They come back. And when they come back, we have an explicit report of what they said. They spoke to Moshe, they spoke to the people. And they said, we went to the land, it flows with milk, it flows with honey. They display its delicious fruits. But then they add... But the nations that live there are mighty and the cities are excessively fortified and the inhabitants are giants. The people say, We can't. We cannot ascend into the land. The people are more powerful than us. In the quarrel and the battle that we will encounter, we will surely be defeated. They say that it's a land that consumes its inhabitants. All the people that we have seen there are huge, humongous, muscular, powerful. The result is, of course, national despair. They managed to dissuade the entire nation and uh, deplete the energy, the vitality, the enthusiasm to go in, the entire nation breaks down sobbing and says, we wish we could have died in Egypt or at least in the desert. Why should we die a violent, bloody death? Why should we subject our wives and our children to die in battlefields? Let's at least go back to Egypt where we could be as slaves and not die. There are two spies, as we know, who disagree. Yeshua from the tribe of Ephraim, Yosef, and Kalev from the tribe of Yehuda. Kalev, the son of Yefuna, and Hesheya, Yeshua, the son of Nun. Those are the only two of the ten, of the twelve, who take a different position, who try to instill confidence and faith and conviction. But the majority, they're outnumbered by the majority of their colleagues, who disagree with them and manage to transform the mood of the nation. And from a hopeful, promising moment in Jewish history, turns into a moment characterized by despair, by sadness, by depression, 
As the Torah says, the entire nation cries a whole night attacking Moshe and Aharon about this horrendous and vicious idea of taking an innocent people to die by a sword, by the hands of these fortified uh, nations living in the land of Canaan in Eretz Yisrael. We all know the continuation of the story. Hashem tells Moshe that I want to smite the people, let them die here in the desert, and you will begin a new nation. Moshe once again stands up and prays and, and argues. And God forgives. He says, I forgive, but the people will not enter into the land. They will remain in the desert. Forty years they will wander the wilderness. Their children, their children, their children, they will enter into, uh, into the land. They left Mitzrayim on the 15th of Nisan. This happened one year and two months later, 14 months later. The spies were sent on the 29th of Sivan, one year after the anniversary of the Exodus, one year and two months, 14 months. They spent 40 days scouting, surveying the land. They came back. Tradition has it, the Gemara says in Tainus, it was the day of Tish, the night of Tishabov, they came back. And that's when the edict happened. So you're dealing with one year after the anniversary of Egypt, a year and a few months. And then they remained there for the four decades. They came into the land of Israel with Yeshua Benun in the year 2488 since creation. The exodus of Egypt happened in the year 2448. Now we're living in 5779, right? Hey Allah from Go back a few years to Bez Alafim Tov Memches, 2448 since creation. That's when the exodus of Egypt happens. 40 years later, they enter into the land. That's 2488. 2488. 48 to 88. 40 years. Yeah. And 440 years later, Shleimah Malach builds the first base of Mikdash. So for the first 440 years, they're without a temple. They have a Mishkan, but that's mobile. It moves around. But the permanent structure in Jerusalem was built only 440 years later. It stood for 410 years. And then they were exiled by Babylonia in the first exile to Babel, which is present-day Iraq. So they remained in Eretz Yisrael for more than 800 years, for approximately 850 years, 440 plus 410. And then they were exiled. So that's around 850 years. And then many come back 70 years later to rebuild the second base Hamikdash. Most Jews remain in exile, but 42,000 Jews come back to rebuild. And there are some Jews who always remained in Eretz Yisrael, even during the exile. Nebuchadnezzar allowed some Jews to stay, who mostly assimilated and intermarried during that period. And Ezra and his colleagues had to create, really, a Jewish renaissance. Okay? You got it? The Miraglam, 40 days. Oh, I thought you meant how long were the Jews in Israel. So I gave this whole history lesson. Sorry. <laughs> the Miraglim, 40 days, not a long. 40 days, yeah. A month and 10 days, yeah. They had to travel the land, so it takes 40 days. You ever traveled there to Israel? 
When Hashem turns to Moshe and starts sharing with him his feelings about what happened, his first words is, Ad How long will this nation uh, cause me such pain? How long, how much longer will they not believe in all the wonders, all the miracles that I have done to them? And hence, I don't think there is a future here. Let them perish in the desert. Moshe fights back, so to speak. He's successful. And God says, they won't die in the desert. It'll be a long time. Many of them lived for another 40 years or 30 years, whatever it was. And their children will come in into the land, will come into the land. After the story, the terror makes a sharp shift into a theme that would seem disconnected. And the next theme is called the Nesachim. Nesachim means libations. Right after the story, Shem tells Moshe, tells the Jews that when they enter into the land, which now we know is going to be 40 years from now, so he starts speaking to him about something that's going to be relevant 40 years later. And as Rashi says, that it's actually a very promising moment. Because after everything, he right away tells Moshe, tell them that when they come into the land, in other words, they're going to come in. It's going to take some time. He gives them a mitzvah of Nesachim. The mitzvah of Nesachim is that when they brought offerings in the Beis HaMikdash, many of the offerings had to be accompanied with Nesachim, which are libations of wine. A certain measurement of wine would be filled in a cup and poured together with the offering on the altar. That's the mitzvah that is introduced right after the spies. A second mitzvah is introduced, one that you're very familiar with, the mitzvah of challah. That when you're baking great, you're baking a dough, you're baking a bread, or whatever you're baking from the grains, from the five grains, so part of the dough is separated, is tithed, and it's identified as a sacred section of the dough known as challah, which is like a truma, it's separated and given to the kayan, and it's considered a holy food, a sacred food, that the kayan must eat in purity. That's the second mitzvah that's introduced. Seems very disjointed. We have the story with the spies, and then suddenly, in 40 years, bring wine libations and separate the dough as challah. And then there's one more mitzvah that's brought in this portion, at the end of the portion, the mitzvah of tzitzis also suddenly emerges the mitzvah of tzitzis, that if there is a cloak with four corners, there should be what we call the fringes, v'nasnu al tzitzis hakonav psiltcheles, the fringes that come out of that cloak that we know as tzitzis, and as the Torah says, each one of the corners should have one strand, one, one of the fringes should be of tcheles, which is turquoise, bluish uh, wool, that is dyed with a special turquoise color, that, st- that mitzvah comes in here as well. What is the connection? What is the theme? It seems very uh, disjointed. Is there a, a thematic connection? Which brings us to the central question. How did this failure happen? How did this happen? If Moshe would have sent no goodniks, rabble-rousers, uh, troublemakers, okay, we could perhaps understand that even then it would be difficult to grasp. But how did this catastrophe happen? 
what went wrong? How are we to understand the story? The commentators have struggled with the story for thousands of years. Any commentator of Chumash, from the earliest generations till our generation, was forced to confront the story. What happened? What was the mistake? What was the error? There are enormous amounts of, of interpretations, a large diversity of interpretations. Today I want to present two. They're really two, um, two extremes, two opposite extremes, at least on the surface. One has to do with an element that we know today very well. A lot of studies have been done, research has been done. We call it self-fulfilling prophecies. We also know a lot about the power of fear, the gripping power of fear. And maybe the best way to summarize it in simple terms is this. Whether you believe you can or you believe you can't, you are probably right. If you believe you can, you're probably right. (laughs) And if you believe you can't, you're probably right. It's not just semantics and feel-good psychology, but there's a truth to it. Much of life is a self-fulfilling prophecy. I believe I can't. I'm right. (laughs) I can't. I believe I can't, and I really can't, because I can't. My actual neurons, my hundred billion neurons firing away every millisecond, every nanosecond, if the message that is conscious in my brain is, I can't, then I really can't. I'm not joking. I'm not trying to run away. I can't. I'm incapable. And if I believe I can then I actually can. Is it true in every situation of life? I don't know if it's true in every situation of life. But many situations of life, we can see it. A lot of us have experienced this or experienced this in our own lives. I once read a sad but humorous story or anecdotal story about this fellow who was an ultimate pessimist. But like the real thing. You know, he always spoke about of how miserable his life was and how he was destined to the worst block and muzzle and everything was supposed to go wrong. And whenever anything went wrong, it was, I told you so. And uh, he worked for a, um, he worked in the exporting business and he would load trains that would travel intercontinental, long, long distances for hours or days to different uh, different states of the Union, and he once loaded a train, it was a refrigerator train, with dairy products that was supposed to go to Vancouver. (laughs) And uh, it had milk, and yogurt, and cheese, and cream cheese, and ice cream, and butter, dairy products, a refrigerated train, just simply to transport the food. And he finished loading this train, which would now travel for approximately 40 hours. And he's about to leave the train, but some mishap, the doors close. 
and off the train goes. It's before the cell phone days. And uh, he knows it's supposed to be a refrigerated train, which means he's supposed to be in a refrigerator for the next 40 hours or so. Slow death of hypothermia. And uh, he sits down to write his final will and testament to his family, finds a piece of cardboard, takes out a pen, after, of course, pounding on a door that nobody hears as the train is off, off on its journey, and he's pounding and pounding, no response, finds a piece of cardboard, writes his final will to his wife and children. He starts off, I always knew that I would die in such a fashion. And he laments how miserable his life was, is, and will be what a miserable death he will encounter. He does wish them well and hopes that they experience a brighter and better future than he did. The train arrives in Vancouver, the doors open, and the people are there to unload the merchandise, and they see this fellow, looks like in a comatose state, unconscious there on the floor. They immediately, immediately bring a doctor to check him out. He checks him out, and the fellow is unconscious. Symptoms of hypothermia, but he can't understand because the refrigerator was off. This is just a dramatic display of what is true in so much, in such a more subtle fashion. And that is, we seldomly, we often fail to challenge the initial awareness that produces so many of our emotional responses. When I'm experiencing an emotional response, whether it's anger or despair or terrible frustration, I often worship that emotion and take it for granted. It's a given. And the question is, how do I deal with this given? But what if I could go back? What if I can trace back this emotion to the awareness that is producing it? There is a certain mindset that is behind it. That mindset I have to challenge. I have to be able to look at. I have to see what is the belief system that is the oxygen of this emotion. Every emotion has oxygen. And without the oxygen, it can't live. There's not an emotion in the world that is not being fueled by messages from your conscious and from your unconscious. Can I, can you have the courage to be able to look at those, to be able to examine those? The Miraglim actually didn't lie. The Ramban points this out. They didn't lie. They described factual truths. When they came and said the land is flowing with milk and honey and these are its fruits, it was accurate. When they said that the nations, the empires, the tribes that are living there are mighty, the cities are fortified excessively, they were describing facts. We will see later in the book of Yahushua, the book of Joshua, that they were describing facts. The fact that they encountered giants was a description of facts. The Ramban asks the question, Did you want them to lie? Did you want them to come back and say, eh, peanuts, (laughs) cigarnished, chopped liver, bupkis, nothing, don't worry, nobody home. 
Did you want them not to say the truth? They said what they saw. But it came with a conclusion. And the conclusion was, and therefore, we can't, we really can't. They are more powerful than us. We simply can't. The facts were true. Hashem's response to what happened in many ways, the Rambam says the Samaritan of Hochem, is not a classic punishment as we often perceive the word punishment. When we hear the word punishment, and it's something I think people have to really get over, we understand that it's like, I'm going to get even with you. I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm stronger than you, and you will see it. <laughs> you will not defeat me. I will defeat you. We sometimes hear in the word punishment some vengeance, some quit per quo. I'm going to get back at you. I'm going to get take back my honor and my power. But imagine you are the most confident, loving, empowered mother in the world. Anybody? The most confident, loving, empowered mother. Okay? And and your little baby, like, disobeyed rules. Do you ever feel like, I'm going to get back at him. I'm going to take revenge. I'm going to teach you a lesson. We have such emotions, especially we men have such emotions. But that's when we're in a more primitive and weak and impulsive and impetuous and exhausted (laughs) state. But when I'm in a wholesome state, I may want to discipline my child, but completely out of love, out of caring, out of affection. It's never, I lose myself, my temper overtakes me, and I simply lose it. Now, we lose it sometimes because we're weak. (laughs) And that's why there's something called apology. (laughs) Saying, I'm sorry, learning lessons. Saying, you know, it was, this was a weak moment. And that's part of, 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 of you, of humans. And that's why we always try not to judge people by their worst moments. Rather, by how they respond to their worst moments. Don't judge yourself based on your worst moments. We have bad moments, weak moments. Judge yourself based on how you respond to those challenging moments. The fact that I lose it, okay. I'm human and I lose it. I have a Yetzirah. How do I respond to that moment? Do I suddenly take my failures and turn them into success stories? Does my weakness now become a philosophy? That's where the challenge is. Not that I have weak moments and bad moments. It's that the weak moments are suddenly hallowed and worshipped and sanctified and they become agansa shita. There was an old Yiddish anecdote about, you know, this fellow who was sitting in the theater, in the theater, and you had to take off your hat. You know, in Europe, you had to take off your hat wherever you went. Coming in with a hat was disrespectful. And uh, this fellow is sitting in the theater and with this big hat. So the guy behind him says, you're blocking me. He says, sorry, I have a principle. I don't take off my hat. And they get into this whole argument. And finally, in the middle of the play, he's so frustrated, he knocks off his hat. And he sees that the guy is completely bald. So the, with the expression in Yiddish is, 
Just because you're bald, don't turn it into a philosophy, into a shit. I have weak moments, I don't have to turn them into a philosophy. I can say I'm sorry, I can apologize, I can be vulnerable. And when I learn from that, and I learn to be in a more confident, loving, and empowered space, then even if I'm disciplining, it's never with a sense of impulsive anger and and craziness. It's coming from a deep place of, of, of affection, of attachment, of caring. So when we read the story in Parsha Shlach, and it seems like, you know, God says, that's it, that's it. I'm wiping them out again. And I'm just saying, wait, 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 wait. It's not to be understood, God forbid, Khalila, as this impetuous, uninhibited sense of vengeance and anger. But it's really much deeper than that. And that is, once the Jews believe that they can't go in, they can't. They can't. They won't be successful. There was a formidable task here. The Miraglim weren't lying. That's why the first thing God says is, Ad There was only one tool that they had that would allow them to be successful. And that is faith and conviction. If they lack this tool, they indeed would not be able to go in. It would really be cruel to take them in just to be defeated. If you believe you can't, you really can't. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. We spoke last week about Miriam and, and, and the daughter of Para. She stretched out her arm. But she stretched out her arm. If you stretch out your arm, I am going to do what I'm going to do. Great things can happen. But if I pull back my arm, I'm incapable, I can't deal with this, this is beyond me. It's beyond me. I have to be able to extend my arm. Who said Roosevelt, we have nothing to fear, but fear itself. It's the fear that they experienced when they sought. And you know, when you see something, it's very powerful. It's extremely impactful. It's the fear that gripped them. It made them panic. It made them paralyzed. And when they brought that back to the Jewish people, it became a self-actualized prophecy. I believe I can't, and I can't. I really can't. I'm not capable. The same facts don't change. There was a senator, Senator Ammonian used to say, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. <laughs> There's a big difference. You're entitled, everybody's entitled to their opinion, but not to your own facts. But the same facts could be said in different ways. The Miraglim came back and said the facts, and then they gave a conclusion. And therefore, it's obvious, Hevra, we're barking up the wrong tree. Egypt is a much better option. We are not capable. That is a belief system. That is not a fact. I say it to myself as a fact. I can't, I can't, I can't deal with this. Those are my neurons that are pre-programmed to think slavery. It's a mindset of slavery. I can't, I can't, I can't. 
We don't even notice that we're telling it to ourselves. It's obvious. I can't, right? Somebody once said, just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean the whole world is not out to get me. Just because Rabbi Yahweh said I shouldn't say I can't doesn't mean that it's not true that I can't. <laughs> it's true. It's a fact. It is a fact. It's a fact because I turned it into a fact. Because I shrinked myself. I put myself into that box. Because I don't realize who I am. You don't realize who you are. You're an ambassador of the divine. God says if you really don't have this conviction, if you don't add, if you don't have this type of conviction, of course you can't. I understand. So you won't. That's true. In Parshas Shaiftim, very good. When they went to war, the Kayan would announce, somebody who was frightened shouldn't go because they were afraid that he will demoralize the other troops. That fear can grip people and then they really become paralyzed. But there's another way of interpreting the story. A completely different way of interpreting the story. I shouldn't say completely. In a deep place, the two interpretations are really one, as always. And God is one. But it's a different angle, a different perspective. And this second interpretation, I heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And it's probably, I could say from all the interpretations, it's certainly one of the most uh, creative ones, endearing ones. And he argued that the spies were not afraid of defeat. That was not the fear. At the surface, it seems like it was a fear of defeat. They were afraid of something else. They were afraid of victory. What they said to the Jewish people is one thing. What was behind what they said is something else completely. The spies were not afraid to lose. They were afraid to win. Let's understand them. What did they have now going on in the desert? What did they have? <laughs> they had everything. <laughs> they had everything. This was a messianic life par excellence. They were living in a utopian dream. No mortgage payments. No tuition payments. Moshe didn't charge tuition. God didn't charge tuition. Yeah. No grocery bills. No therapy bills. No bills even to go to a nutritionist to help you deal with the Shabbos diet of egg salad and mayonnaise and chopped liver. And Choland Kishke Chala and Jalapeno herring with a lot of oil? Because there were no Rogalach in the desert. No cheesecake, no babka, no lasagna, no carbs. Heavenly mana. <laughs> mana. So you didn't even have to pay to go to the gym, personal trainer, yoga, Pilates, nutritionists with acupuncture. Even that bill was gone. Like the Gemara says in Yuma, by the manna had nothing in it that couldn't be converted into the bloodstream. When we eat food, 
part of the food, hopefully most of the food, depends what you're eating. I don't know what you had for breakfast, but hopefully most of the food can become part of the bloodstream and part of our energy flow. And there's part of the food that the body evacuates because the body says, sorry, no use for this. It belongs somewhere else. We call it psoilus. That's what our body does for us. The man did not have any psoilus. The Ramemi Panu says they made a brach on it. It wasn't minar, it was minashamayim. That was the blessing on the man. So you understand what type of bodies they had. Their bodies were aligned with its natural, innate, divine energy and chemistry. You know who the teachers were. Moshe Rabbeinu was a teacher. Aaron was a teacher. They were protected on every level, physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually. Now I ask you a question. You got to be crazy to leave this life. (laughs) You got to be crazy. They knew that in the land everything changes. There's no manna from heaven. Suddenly it's carbs. Can you imagine? They have to become farmers, agricultural experts. They have to build armies and fight wars. They have to build an infrastructure. They got to build homes and cities. There is the politics of building a nation. Even pure politics is still politics. There's the responsibility of a physical life, of a material life. There are bills to pay. They have to make meat, they have to make ends meet. There's the stress of raising children, of building families, of maintaining a country, of dealing with enemies, within and without. So the spies were frightened of victory. They were afraid that we're going to be successful. And we'll enter into the land. And what will happen? In the desert, you're living with God in the closest proximity. Hashem is in your bedroom. Engulfed by clouds of glory. With Moshe as your teacher. The greatest prophet communicating what he heard today, in the morning, yesterday from Hashem himself. The Shechina is there. There's a cloud of glory. The GPS, God's positioning system. Every step you take, every breath, every step you take, every breath, every moment is an expression of that intimacy with the divine presence. In the land of Israel, nature will take over. A life of nature. A life of rain and seasons and natural food. You don't have this rolling rock, Be'erish or Miriam coming with you, and everything else that came along with life in the desert. Protected on all levels. It was literally a heavenly existence on earth. The spies were terrified of it. And it's three words, they say, Eretz Oicheles Yoishveh. It's a land that eats up its inhabitants. The responsibilities of material life will eat us up. They will consume us. They will stress us out. And most importantly, it will be, it will spell the end of this rich, powerful, infinite relationship with the divine. Everything is going to change. That's what the spies are afraid of. That's what the Miraglim are terrified of. They're afraid of this Awesome, enormous responsibility, pressure, and stress as a whole new paradigm 
opens up before them. As the previous life is transformed, as they have to face a material world in all of its bruteness. Eretz Eichelis Yishvah. What they tell the Jewish people is one thing. What they, their intentions behind what they tell the Jewish people is something else completely. And yet, this means that there was a nobility to their sin. There was something holy about their sin. The Sfasemis says, the Zohar says, why didn't the Mispais want to go into Eretz Yisrael? Because here they were leaders. I mentioned in the beginning the Torah identifies them as Rashi Bnei Yisrael. They were heads. The Zohar says they knew if they enter into the land, they won't be heads anymore. They're going to be feet. So everyone interprets the Zohar that they were scared they're going to lose their leadership position. Here, they're big machers. Over there, they'll be replaced. There'll be new elections. So they said, let's stay here. It seems like a power struggle. But the truth is it's not. It's much deeper. What they meant was not only themselves. Everybody is ahead in the desert. The brain is the place, the seat of consciousness. The brain is the place where the soul is visible. The Medrash and Ovis the Rebnasim calls the Akev, the soul of the foot, the Malacham Ovis Shaba Adam. The angel of death in a person because it gets the least circulation. That's why people who suffer from diabetes, though the feet always get affected first because the circulation there in a good day is not so strong. It's so far from the heart. And therefore, when somebody is suffering with blood, with the sugar in the blood, etc., the feet are affected first. The seat, the head, the seat of consciousness is the brain, the central nervous system. Spiritually speaking, they said here, Rashi B'nai Yisrael, we can, we have consciousness. We're aware, we're alert. You go into that land, we'll be like in a spiritual comatose state. You're not fully alive. It's like somewhat of a zombie. We won't have that, that mental space, that mental awareness, that connection. That spiritual, deep, intimate connection with God that we have here in the desert. What's fascinating is we know today there are two types of fears in life. There is the fear of losing, of defeat. There's another fear. It's a fear of success. You'll ask somebody, do you want to be successful? Of course I want to be successful. But sometimes... We undermine our own success because there is a fear in being successful. You know what happens when you're successful? You can't blame anybody for your problems. <laughs> if I'm losing, I can blame everybody. I can blame the shvigin, and the mom and the tat and the community and the rabbi and the system and the school and the this. If I'm a powerhouse, I'm successful. Am I going to blame? Now I have to take responsibility myself. Sometimes we're afraid to be successful because success comes with responsibility. Success means the buck stops here. Success means I could navigate my own life. Success means I can author my own biography. Success means I can let go of the resentments and the fears and the shackles that hold me down. Success means I'm free. Is it so easy to be free? Free means actually there's nobody else to blame. The buck stops right here. I can be the master of my own life. I'm a free human being. I'm uninhibited. I can't blame. 
my spouse and my sibling and my family and my extended family and this one and that one. I have the ball in my court. Sometimes we're very afraid of that. There's something nice about being a Nebuch case. You know what I mean? Although nobody says it. Nobody says, you want to be a Nebuch? No, 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 no. But then I start quetching. <laughs> if I don't want to be, why am I? This is an unconscious source of fear. There's fear to fail. And therefore, I will not try new things. I will not take risks. I will not be vulnerable. I will remain in my comfort zone. There's also another fear. I'm fearful that I'm going to succeed. There are people sometimes stuck in a difficult marriage. They know that there's certain things they can do and not do that will make that marriage much more successful and happier. But they will revert back to their old habits of looking at it the same way, saying the same thing, and reconfirm the negativity and toxicity of the marriage. What is it? Perhaps it's a fear of being hurt again. And sometimes it's a fear of actually being free, of being happy, of being powerful, of being successful. It sounds a little counterintuitive, but the unconscious is a very sly, tricky guy, the Sahara. Sometimes people are afraid to be happy. Do you know that? Especially Jews. They're afraid to be happy. Then you're going to want to know what I'm taking, what I'm on, why am I Meshuga? If, if we're all miserable, Baruch Hashem. <laughs> they say that once the Knesset had this whole debate about how to boost the Israeli economy because it was in a difficult situation. So an old man says, I have a great idea. Let Israel declare war on America. Like Japan and Germany. And what did America do to Japan and Germany? Wiped them out, felt guilty because Americans feel guilt. And then they rebuilt them into economic superpowers. Let's declare war on America. America will wipe us out, feel guilty, and then we'll become an economic superpower. And one old Jew in the Knesset gets up, he says, one problem I have. It's a brilliant, but one problem. What happens if we win the war? <laughs> Believe it or not, sometimes people are afraid to be a success story. There's a voice in me. No. My relationship with my children has to be problematic. My marriage has to have some issues. What am I going to say to him about? What's going to happen to the Yiddish Krechts? What? You know what a Yiddish Krechts is? You know what a Yiddish Krechts is? How do you say it in French? There's no word in French, huh? The French don't sigh, huh? <laughs> okay. What's going to happen to the groan, to the sigh, to the oi? You know the oi? What's going to happen to the oi? And I ask you, what's going to happen when Mashiach comes to the Yiddish Krechts? Ah. Ah. It's like, you know, the story about the three women in Miami Beach, and one says, oi, and the other one says, oi, vez me, and the other one says, oi, gotten you, reboinah shaloylam, and the fourth says, we made up not to talk about the children today. (laughs) 
Sometimes there is a deep voice in me or in you or in us that says, I'm not let to be happy. I'm not let to be successful. I can't be a powerhouse. I can't be as influential as I could be. I can't be as beautiful as I should be or could be physically, emotionally, spiritually. I can't be. Who am I to be? For whatever reason. Maybe it's some trauma. Maybe it's some messages. Maybe this is going too much out of the comfort zone. Maybe I'm afraid of Ian Horace. All these types of messages that say you stay in the closet for life. Much better place. <laughs> but God says in Shir Hashirim, Hashmi'ini es Har'eini es Ki koilech orev you know those verses in the Song of Songs. He describes, My dove is in the clefts of a rock. You ever saw a bird hiding in the cleft of a rock because it sees a vulture? You ever see, you could see it in Muncie sometimes. I got some vultures on my block. And hawks and these cute little adorable doves are hiding. Bechagve, chagve is like the cleft. Beseser hamadrega, Shehashirim says, under a hidden step, not to be noticed. So Shehashirim says, Hareini es marayich, show me your countenance. Hashmiini es koilech, let me hear your voice. Ki koilech orev umareich nove, your voice is sweet and your countenance is beautiful. Koil hatar nishma baritzenu. Spring has come. It's time to come out of hibernation. Learn from the trees. They hibernated a whole winter. Learn from the beers. They hibernated a whole winter. But as the rays of the sun emerge, God is saying, come out of the clefts of the rock. It's time to blossom. It's time to get back your pigment of green. It's time to begin the process of photosynthesis. Look at the trees in their full blossom. That's what he says there. The, the 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 grains and the legumes and the vegetables and all the fruits are blooming and blossoming. Why don't you also emerge from hibernation? It's a different type of fear. It's a fear of success. What is it to be on top of the world, not on bottom of the world? It's very scary. Now I have to make decisions. Now I'm responsible. It's a whole different experience. Am I allowed to even be? Somebody once told me I'm afraid to be happy. I said, why? Because then God is going to punish me. And I said, and if you're not happy, then I'm already punished. (laughs) So it's good. But if I'm happy, now I'm living a good life. He's going to have to punish me. I'm like, just give God as much credit as you would give a healthy mother. Not more. (laughs) Just as much. What would you say to a mother who speaks like that about a child? You know, I see my child is happy. Time to destroy him. Right? You ever heard a mother speak like that? My 17-year-old is happy, which is a miracle, of course, right? <laughs> Your 17-year-old comes home. Hey, how is life? Ma, awesome. Right? Mashiach came already. <laughs> if your 17-year-old says, Ma, and I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Usually, how is life? Uh, what's for supper? Again? Good luck. How is life? Yeah. You see your child is happy. Oh, this is not good. This is not good. Let's make it. Who thinks like this? Why do people think that Hashem wants them to be miserable? I never understood. But everybody needs a source for everything. So it says in Parshas Kisavi, at the end of all the Toichecha, the worst thing is, Tachas, Hashem, Hashem, 
Besimcha uvetuv levav. Says the Rambam in Hilchus Lulav. That's what hurts God. Why aren't you happy? The Rambam and Hilchus Lulav and the Arizal gives the same interpretation. But sometimes there is this, I feel a lack of permission for success. And unconsciously, I may undermine my own success. Sometimes people will say something. They know deep down they could have said something else. But they will perpetuate the toxicity of the relationship. They will perpetuate the negativity just to make sure that things don't change. Because success comes with a big responsibility. The origin of this idea, which is prevalent today in psychology, is in the spice, the miraglam. They had a very noble calculation, but sometimes noble calculations are still wrong. Because it's not what Hashem wants. In the words of the Medrash, Tanchuma Parshas Nasoi, Medrashaba Parshas Nasoi, Nisava Kadish Baruchu Lias Loidira Bitachtoinim. One line. God desired that we build a dwelling place for him, Bitachtoinim. Tachtoinim means in the mundane lower elements of reality. I could disengage from the world, but my soul could have also remained in heaven and not come down. The whole story of existence of birth is entering into a world, entering into a body, entering into a material plane where the divine consciousness is eclipsed. A human being dealing with physical reality, facing the realities of inside and outside, and yet having the courage to reveal the shechina, the divine presence, create a fragment of heaven on earth. This was the error of the spies. The spies were afraid of that because they knew there are risks. They knew it takes courage. It's easy to remain in the paradise. And yet that was their sin. It was the lack of the ability to understand, to believe, to appreciate That is your very purpose. Your very purpose is to transform the landscape of planet Earth. Your very purpose is to confront your demons, your skeletons, your insecurities, your trauma, your addictions. Your very purpose is that you are empowered to be able to take Earth and transform it into Heaven. To take unholiness and transform it into holiness. To take the body and align it with the soul. To eat regular food and eat, drink regular drinks and deal the day-to-day responsibilities of life and yet experience divine intimacy within that space. Are there risks involved? Of course. That's what they were afraid of. And thus they neglected the whole purpose of it. It's something that paralyzes still many Jews. We are sometimes terrified of the world. We want to remain sheltered in our own desert. And then when we do face the world, it's sometimes so difficult. It becomes so overwhelming. We don't have the tools and we can easily get lost. The mistake of the spies was to understand that the ultimate purpose of Yiddishkeit is to engage and transform my environment into the divine reality. 
into a divine abode. I have nothing to fear. And the reason I have nothing to fear is because as the messengers of Hashem, every Jew must enter into the land and turn his or her land into Eretz Yisrael, into a place of holiness, into a place of sacredness. Never ever fear the challenges that face you, the reality that you're in, and feel that you must disengage, detach, numb yourself from the reality that faces you. And all numbness is a form of disengagement. No, I could remain fully present. And I can transform the very gashmi, the very chumri, into the divine. Of course, the Jewish people had to first be in the desert in order to be able to enter into the land because they had to have the strong foundation. But the desert was not the goal. It was the means It was the beginning of the journey. It was not the end of the destination. They wanted to turn it into the end of the destination. And sometimes I have to really appreciate this, that the ultimate purpose of Yiddishkeit was l'sakein oilam b'malchus shindalad yud, as we say three times in Aleinu, to fix the world, to transform the landscape of civilization. The world was given to you to elevate, to sublimate, to metamorphosize. Don't be afraid of it. It's there for you to transform, beginning with your, with your own body, with your own self, with your own environment, internal and external. And therefore, right after the story, come the three mitzvahs that give a blueprint to this exact idea. And here you see the subtlety of the connections and the profundity of the connections. You're going to become farmers. You're not going to have mana. You're not going to have Miriam's, Miriam's water. You're going to build gardens and orchards and farms and fields. And of course, your orchards will produce fruit. And the greatest prominent fruit, the vineyards, the vine with the clusters of grapes that has a special blessing. Usually fruit juice just gets a shahakal. Oranges, Bariya eats. Apples, Bariya eats. Apple juice, Shahakal. Orange juice, Shahakal. Why? Because it's not the fruit anymore. The value of the fruit is the fruit. You squeezed it into juice. Great. It's a Shahakal like water. One exception. Wine. You squeeze the grape, and from an eight, it's elevated into Bariya Goffin. So you have this beautiful orchard. That you worked very hard. Those of you who are farmers or planted orchards, you know what it takes to nurture a vineyard or other fruit trees. It's not simple. It comes with blood and sweat and toil. God tells Adam. But the Torah says, a little bit of this wine you're going to bring up to the altar and you're going to pour and it's going to become a divine aroma. And your whole vine is now sanctified. The whole vine is transformed. As part of it literally becomes a carbon. It becomes divine. This is not mana from heaven. This is mana from earth. This is my labor with weeds fighting grasshoppers <laughs> and fighting all the birds of all the birds that are eating up my my vin, my vines and building fences, schwitzing and schwitzing, and part of it becomes a divine carbon. And then I farm my grain, my spelt and my oats and my rye and my wheat and my barley. 
and I'm baking bread. This is not manna from heaven that lands in the morning on Forche or on Lincrest or on Lodi Lane or on 306 or on the 59. Everybody goes out of their house, picks up their manna, brings it home. There's enough breakfast, lunch, and dinner. How do I know? Because right now some of you are thinking, what's going to be for dinner tonight? They didn't have to do that by the man. Now today, Nach, you can go into the store and buy bread. They didn't have that luxury. You didn't buy bread. You went and you planted wheat and you planted barley. And the stalks grew. And then you had to harvest. And then you had to thresh. And then you had to winnow. And then you had to select. And then you had to grind. And then you had to knead. And then you baked. And today, many people don't even know what all these words mean. <laughs> Not even kneading. They walk in. Give me ten chalas. Shine. Didn't work that way. And I finish and I have this dough and it's ready. He says, no, on a piece of this dough you're going to separate. And it becomes truma, it becomes holy, it becomes divine. Both of these mitzvahs have something very powerful in common. The rest of the dough you're going to eat. But part of this dough became divine. And then you have animals, all your animals that you have to raise. You need to get milk from your animals and you need your animals to plow. And you get your animals for fleece. And from your animals, from the fleece, from the wool, you're going to make a garment, you're going to make tzitzis. And a part of this fleece, a part of this wool, is going to become a mitzvah, tzitzis. So you have here the world of fruits, you have the world of grain, farming, and you have the animals, which becomes part of the ancient lifestyle, day-to-day life, in generating the revenue that came from these natural resources that earth provides. But with tzitzis, there's one more thing. There's the talus of tzitzis, the cloak. That's the garment. And then there are the fringes. The Torah says, al tzitzis hakanaf, in each corner, there should be one strand, one thread, that's dyed with a special turquoise. So the Gemara says, Reb Meir says, tcheles doimaliyam, it looks like the sea, the ocean, which is doimalirakia, which looks like the sky which is which looks like the throne of glory. Blue, in ancient times, was considered the royal color. That bluish turquoise color has something very unique to it, appealing to the eye. The color of royalty, the Gemara says, reminds the person of the ocean, reminds them of the heavens, and ultimately reminds them of the throne of glory. What, what, does, this, what does all of this mean? What it means is, I have a garment... And I have fringes hanging from the garment. And there's one strand, one thread, that I look at it, and it reminds me of heaven. And that's the mitzvah of tzitzis. I'm not living anymore in heaven. I'm living on earth. But there's one thread that I look at, and it reminds me to be able to look up, to be able to see heaven. And that's the mitzvah of tzitzis. And here lay the ultimate power of human existence. The ultimate power of human existence is not that the person lives within the blue heavens. I don't. But I have to be able to stand on earth and yet look up at that one strand that is mixed into the other strands. It's mixed into the other threads. It's heavenliness that's mixed in, like the chala, like the nesachim. And what does it teach the person? It teaches the person that under all circumstances, in every single situation, 
that I'm facing. I never ever have to be terrified from any one of my emotions. I never have to be terrified of any one of any reality that faces me. I never ever have to be terrified of a world around me. I never ever have to be terrified of my own impulses, experiences, of my own body, of my own psyche, of my own brain. I never ever have to be terrified of the responsibilities, the journeys, the relationships, the people who are in my life. I never have to disengage. I don't have to detach. Why? Because the function of a Jew is to reveal oneness, to reveal that ein oid mulvadai. There is nothing outside of him. This, for the spies, was so difficult to wrap their brains around, not because they were lowly, but because they were noble, they were celestial. There was a heavenliness to them. And that's exactly where they wanted to remain. It is fascinating because the Gemara says, when they said, Ki chazak hu mimenu, he's more powerful, they're more powerful than us. Mimenu really means than him. So the Gemara says, Rashi says, they said that the people in Israel are more powerful than God. You're living in my house, and you're a gangster, and I can't come in to get out my vessels, because you don't let me. They said Hashem can't take out his Caleb from Eretz Yisrael, because they're more powerful. Isn't that, how could the Gemara say this is what they said? Isn't that utter nonsense? The spies really believe that? You just left Egypt. <laughs> how did you get out of Egypt? Really? God can't go into Eretz Yisrael? What were they saying? They were saying something very deep. They knew that God can do whatever he wants. But what they said is this. There is a system of nature and there's a system of miracles. Where we're in a miracle mode, I'm good. God can do whatever he wants. But he's sending us into a civilized land to live according to nature. Nature was established by God. These are immutable laws. It's fixed. Even God himself can't suddenly change the system. He made a system. It's a respectful system. If you want to operate on a level of miracles, fine, operate on a level of miracles. But you want me to operate on a level of nature. You want me to fight a war. You want me to become a farmer. You want me to live according to nature. If that's the case, the spy said, let's look at nature. Let's look at the statistics. Let's look at our manpower. There's no way we're going to win. Even Hashem can't change that because this is the world of nature. That's what the Miraculum is saying. And you want us to go into that world? What was their error? Their error was, nature too is a conduit of the divine. Nature is not separate. Nature is not detached. Nature is not a different reality. The same God of miracles is the God of nature. Nature too is an expression of godliness. And therefore, if he sends you here, you will be successful. Not only by reverting to heavenliness, by engaging the earth, you will be successful. Because earth and heaven are really one. Have a wonderful week. No. So they shouldn't. You don't have to, don't have to flaunt you don't have to flaunt success. We're not talking about flaunting. We're talking about 
fulfilling your mission. You may know a borderline personality disorder. Yes. If a parent, a mother, you can't make mothers all holy, destroy you when you succeed. Yeah. Don't confuse God with a sick person. Right. Be afraid of success. Right. Even because a mother... Yes, yes, yes. That's why I said, I said a healthy mother. A mother who has borderline personality disorder will often destroy the success of her child. So not succeed? Yes, yes, yes. I know. So we can't always confuse God with our mothers when they're sick or father. A lot of Hatzlacha. Don't be afraid of success. It's still hard. On that last note, it's still hard to accept how they didn't have that connection to see their natures also now in the hands of nature. It's like you said, it's thousands of years of uh, understanding nationality. Listen, they were very spiritual people. A lot of people till today feel that you have to... Yiddishkeit could only be successful in a particular cocoon. You can't change the world. So, well, there's still a lot of people like that. They feel that as a shita, as the ultimate goal, Judaism has to be... Uh, Judaism has to be protected. It's a, it's a very genuine idea that we could live in the world of Ruchnis. We can't transform the world of Gashmis. We cannot, uh, we cannot change planet Earth. And therefore we have to remain segregated, essentially. Not just as a means for an end, but as an end in and of itself. Now we all need segregation. Children have to be educated in a protected environment. You can't send the chicks out of the nest before they know how to fly. You have to nurture, you have to nurture them in a protected environment. But ultimately, the birds, the birds got to fly. And there are always Jews who have to remain in that cocoon. Like always, you know, connected to a higher plane of reality. Throughout history, there were always those people. But the ordinary Jew is empowered in his or her own way to be able to make a difference, to be able to change the world. There's a mission here. Don't just think about yourself and your own spiritual growth. You have to think about that. But you can change the world. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was one of the big ideas of the Rebbe to, uh, to change the world. You shouldn't be afraid of success. Yeah. Yeah, listen, you're not supposed to flaunt. Yaakov says, you don't have to show off. We're not about flaunting. You know, it's a in the Eugen to flaunt it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about inner success. You understand what I'm saying? For me to fulfill my mission with, with full power and dvekas and simcha. Put it in someone else's face. Yeah. You have to put it in somebody else's face. and Then, then it's not success. Then it's, you know, petty games. Huh? Bragging. Yeah, that's it. You understand what I'm saying? Dover hasamim in ayin means modest. The person has to be modest. But modesty doesn't mean that I have to fail. Modest means that I'm in a relationship with God. I'm not in a relationship 
you know, with, with the media and with people. I'm not a Facebook addict. Everything everybody has to know and has to see. I'm in a relationship with Hashem. People feel like they're putting it out there for everyone to see so that... If my mission is to put it out there, put it out there. My mission is not to put it out there. It's a different mission. Everyone in their own. Why did Hashem first show them perfection and then to ask them to step out of that? I Explain. Like it was a base for the future, something to look forward to and stuff, like a goal to reach. But it seems natural that they wouldn't want to leave that. Perfect. Right. So that's exactly the point, that we understand their challenge. <laughs> we can relate to them. They were saying something beautiful, and yet it was considered a sin. Because they should have been able to see the mission of the world? Because it's not the ultimate purpose of the Jew. The ultimate purpose of a Jew is l'sakin oilam, to transform teva, to transform the physical world, to transform all the nations of the world. What was your question? My question was, it seems to me a parallel that when somebody is in Kailal, it's very much like being in the Midbar. Ah. They go and they live, and that's what the Torah and all the Dinim and the Gemara is about, halakhas of life, not particularly yeah. the base Midbar. Yeah. Yeah. So, what is your answer to that? It seems to me very much that people are afraid to leave Kailal the same yeah. way that people are afraid to leave the Midbar. It's an interesting comparison. There are sometimes uh, young men who call me a fellow called me from a particular community. He was in Cairo for many years. And uh, he now has to go work. And, uh, and he was in terrible, terrible pain. I said, what's the pain? Is it disappointment? Is it, uh, you're going to miss it? Because that's good. You're going to... He said, no. He feels that I'm disappointing Hashem. I'm disappointing the Jewish people. I'm, I'm a failure. And I told him that, you know, I don't think you should look at it that way. I don't think you should look at it. You know, look at most of Jewish history. There were Jews who had the schus to remain and learn their whole life. Just like the Kohen Gadol, never left. Beis HaMikdash, Yerushalayim, he was not allowed to leave. Even for a funeral of the family, he wouldn't get Tameh. But if I'm going to compare myself to a Kohen Gadol, it's wrong. Take the king of himself. Yom Kippur, he had to go into the Holy of Holies. What if he said, I want to stay here forever. It's a sin. It's time to go out. I, I want to be in the Holy of Holies. When Hashem wants you to be in the Holy of Holies, go in. Now he wants you to go out. He wants you to go out. And being in helps you go out. But that's the purpose, to go out, not to stay. Why don't we have every day Yom Kippur? Every day we should have Yom Kippur. Well, angels, why should we be angels every day? You've got to be a human angel, <laughs> not an angelic angel. So I told this person, you had many years, you had a schus to learn Torah. Now God is sending you out. You could bring godliness to the world, to people. It could be Mekar of Eden. He didn't look at it that way. He saw it as a failure, as, as an abandonment of Judaism, as, as a loser. And I think it's a, it's a tragic error. People shouldn't see it that way. It, it's really the question of where Hashem wants me. It's really the question of where Hashem wants me. Learning Torah is a gewaldic thing. There's nothing like learning Torah. It's in the Holy of Holies. <laughs> so it really depends what Hashem wants from me. Throughout history, there were always some Jews who sat and learned their whole life. And this gave a certain connection. You know, to everybody, they were teachers and 
rabbis or authors or Shashivas, etc. Um, as as the responsibility for most Jews, that was never the case. That most Jews have to do this. If a person, if a person could learn, and the person uh, uh, is being matzliach in it, really successful, and you you utilizing their time in an optimum fashion, in a real maximum fashion, then there's certainly something to consider, something powerful to consider. You also have to know the person. In other words, today we live in a generation where there's so much assimilation that any person who has a skill to use at least part of their time to reach out and educate and teach and bring other people closer, it's a responsibility in our generation. To give an example, I could be sitting and learning all day and very successful. If I see a house on fire... I stop and I go put out the fire because my perfection shouldn't trump what could be the death of other people. Today we have a fire burning. Fire, fire burning. There's not many Jews and we're losing them every day. So any Jew who has the ability and the privilege and the, the know-how to have influence on other people in terms of education, in terms of leadership, in terms of reaching out, whatever it is, today has a responsibility, I think, to dedicate at least some of their time to do that. Everybody. Or at least, I don't know everybody, but people who could. People who could. Because of unique circumstances. Shav a lot of Hatzlach and a lot of Nachas. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.